In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue and conclude, um, most likely, the book of First John, the epistle um, of St. John, and we're going to study chapters 4 and 5. Last time we finished uh, chapter 3, uh, chapters 2 and 3. So he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Um, so here, when St. John is speaking about testing the spirits, he doesn't, he's not specifically speaking only about like if there's some kind of an apparition, uh, if there's some kind of apparition, uh, or, or vis someone has a vision, or there is um, some appearance of some kind of angel, uh, or something similar to this, that that we are to to test to see whether is this really like a like a, a minister from God, like an angel from God, or is a demon. Now th there are things like this that do happen, and we read in the stories in the church of various cases where maybe the the devil appears to someone in the form of an angel to try to deceive, and we should test the spirits to know whether they are truly from God or not. Um, but but here he's speaking more about the spirit of the teaching, um, the spirit of the people who are coming to teach and whether they are coming to deceive the church or not. Because then he, he goes on after he says to test the spirits, he says, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, which means he's speaking about are the, are the people who are claiming to be um, teachers from God or apostles or prophets, are they truly who they say uh, they are or not? Um, and the Didache, which is um, uh, an early church document that um, contained in it many of the teachings of the Twelve Apostles, one of the things that it's mentioned there is that if, if one of these prophets, like traveling prophets, comes to visit a church um, and they, they choose to stay there for more than two days, then th they should be treated as though that they're a false prophet, meaning they're the person is coming um, because they want accommodations and they want the hospitality more than they are coming to give a message. Because if they were coming to give the message, they would come, they would stay for one or two days, and then after that they would leave and go on to the next place in order to also prophesy there. Um, but, but if they stay longer than that, then maybe they have another motivation of why is it that they're wanting um, to stay. So the idea of having faith, it doesn't mean that we should be naive. Like we should be testing. We should say, whenever I hear something, um, is this matching what is it that I already know? Uh, is it in line with it or not? And if not, I can ask questions. I can do research. I can and can try to figure out, is this really like something maybe I need to correct in my own understanding? Or is it that what I'm being taught or what is being taught is, is not correct? Um, false prophets, whenever they, uh, they speak, right? They speak something, of course, that tries to sound true. Um, and so usually there is some truth in what's being said. And usually when the devil lies, he, 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 he lies with some truth in it. If it was a very obvious lie, then maybe no one would accept it. But if he has enough truth in it to where it sounds plausible and believable, um, and, and, and once he's established kind of credibility, then people are just willing to accept and hear and listen to everything else that's said and just accept it without any questioning. This is when really we can fall into trouble. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Maybe what we don't realize is that many of the philosophies and, and, and lifestyles and, and, um, and, and, and ideologies that exist in the world today, even though 
maybe we can trace their origin to some person who was the one who first came up with such a thought or wrote a book about it and then later it became very influential and spread and many people accepted the idea even though it, it appears to come from a person but actually the one who is behind all lies is Satan and maybe he's the one who's influencing these people influencing the the influencers right influencing the ones who are then influencing the rest of the world um, and that's why he's saying giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons these doctrines of demons are not like books that are like labeled doctrines of demons that then people will read and say yes this is what we want to teach the doctrines of demons but the doctrines of demons are something that is um, that is camouflaged and hidden and something that is not clearly identifiable as being coming from Satan actually many people who believe these things don't even believe in Satan um, and yet they believe in his philosophies and they believe in the way that he is seeking to deceive the world so we are we are to be very careful not to accept any idea or thought without questioning by this you know the spirit of god every spirit that confesses that jesus christ has come in the flesh is of god and every spirit that does not confess that jesus christ has come in the flesh is not of god and this is the spirit of the antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world okay so he's saying how is it you should test the spirits you know when we speak about testing the spirits it says if the spirit and again when we say the spirit here he's not speaking just about like uh, an apparition right he's speaking about the the person who is coming to 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 preach to give a message saying if every if every every spirit that confesses that jesus christ has come in the flesh is of god and every spirit that does not confess that jesus christ has come in the flesh is not of god so the the pivotal kind of fact here right is whether they believe that Jesus Christ is God or not. Now, keep in mind that at the time that this was being written, um, we, we spoke about the heresy of Gnosticism, and the Gnostics believed that um, the flesh, the, 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 the body, the physical world, it was, was sinful and evil. And that's why they denied the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ as being a true incarnation. And they said about him that he was like an apparition, that he, was, he appeared as a man, but he wasn't truly a man. And that's why here he's focusing on this idea. If you want to test to know whether this teaching is correct or not, those people who are saying that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh um, are not of God, right? Actually, this is very specific to the Gnostic heresy. But it doesn't mean that this is the only way that we test whether something is um, of God or not. If something is in line with God's doctrines and God's commandments and God's word, then it's of God. But if it is not of God's word, then it's not. And so... The person who can test is the person who is familiar with the word of God. The person who is familiar with the teachings of the church and the traditions of the church and the, the writings of the church fathers. Those are the people who are able to make this discernment and tell when I hear something whether it sounds right or it doesn't sound right to me. And he says, if the this spirit is not of God, he says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And as we said before, the term Antichrist refers to, to several things. Um, it refers to an actual person who is going to come at the end times, but it also refers to a type of ideology or thinking that is already found in the world, which is a th an ideology that is against God, right? Um, and that's why he is saying um, is already in the world, right? Like the Antichrist himself is not yet in the world at the time of the writing of this, but the spirit of the Antichrist is the the ideology of the antichrist the idea of people standing up against god and 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 being being 
challenging him and being his enemy and denying him, all of that was already in the world. St. Didymus the Blind, he says, if a spirit dissolves the divine hu human unity of Christ and thinks that the pure word of God is outside all flesh and cannot really be a man and states that everything done in his incarnation is a fantasy, then that spirit is not from God. So again, it's very, um, very much applicable to this Gnostic heresy um, and anyone who says that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, which was something that the early church was struggling with. Yes. Um, so I know that um, some Hindus believe that Jesus is God, as a God, as one of the many gods. I don't know. You can correct me, Matthew, if you know. Yes. So, so like as as in Hinduism, you can select like a, a god to be like a savior god. I think they're called like bodhivastas or something like that. Um, you you can select one, and and it is through worshiping that god that you would be saved, right? So one of the gods that you can select is Jesus. Right, because they have no problem with polytheism, so they have no issue with there being many gods, and uh, and the fact that Jesus would be God is not something that is takes away at all from the other divinities that they have. Okay. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Okay. One emphasis that Saint John makes here in his epistle is the idea that we are the children of God. We are not just the servants of God. We are just we're not just the creation of God, but that we have a certain status. We have a certain um, like special status of being children. And of course, children, if we are children, that means God is our father. And it is a relationship of love. It's a relationship of unity. It's a relationship of, of respect. It's a relationship of of dependence, just as a child depends on their father, depends on their parents for so much so also we are a dependent on god so he's saying you are of god meaning you came from god just as the, the 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 father begets children right so you are of god right little children and he says even little children like you're not even adult children you are you are young you are immature you are sinful you are you are you are prone to error you are very easily deceived right L see yourselves in this context don't see yourselves as being Someone with all the answers has got it all together, but someone who needs to trust unconditionally their father for everything good. Um, so you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Overcome who? Overcome the heretics. Overcome these spirits of the Antichrist. Overcome, like, like you are going to overcome all of these false teachings, all these false teachers and prophets, right? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So God who is in us, Right. And again, when speaking about the relationship between us and God, because even in an earthly in an earthly sense, you cannot say that the father is in the children. You could say that the children have some characteristics of the father. You can say that the children have, you know, a good relationship with the father. But you can't say that the father is in the children. Right. But but when it comes to God, God is actually in us. So the, the, the unity that we have with God is greater. It's a greater unity. It's a greater relationship than that which any human child would have with their father. So because God is greater than the world and God is in us, then that means that we have conquered the world. Right? We have conquered the world because God is the one who is making us to conquer. God is the one who is revealing the truth. God is the one who is illuminating us so that we can see the truth and that we can 
um, not be deceived by these doctrines of demons um, that that St. John is referring to. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. But the, but this by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So those people who are in the world, they speak as the world. They speak the natural tongue and language of the world, and they're very easily accepted by the world because they fit the worldview of the rest of the world. They fit the worldview of the secular life. They, they fit the worldview of, 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 of the atheists. They fit the worldview of the materialists. They fit the worldview of the hedonists. They, all of those types of lifestyles, these people, these false teachers are, are in line with them, and so the world easily accepts them. We, we, you know, when we speak about how like we can easily pick and choose the prophets that we that we want, when King Ahab was wanting to go to war and he 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 didn't want to speak to the one prophet who was going to tell him the truth because he said I hate him because he always preaches against me or he speaks against me, right? So sometimes we don't want to hear the truth and we just go to the people who tell us what we want to hear, what's already in line with our belief system, and this is what here he's speaking about. The world only goes to those who are of the world. But we are of God. We are not of the world, right? And so just as we are of God, so those who are of God hear us, right? They hear us because the language that we speak is the language of God, and people accept this because it is, it is coming from God. And that's why it's very important in the church that we, make it, that we discern between the voice of the spirits that are of God and the voice of the spirits of the Antichrist, which is what St. John is speaking about. Because if the church begins to follow after the spirit of the antichrist then the church is also lost and maybe the spirit of the antichrist when addressing the church is going to address the church with a language that's very easy for the church to believe and accept um, very theological language very uh, very la language is very close very similar to what is it that we are already used to hearing so that when we hear it our guard is down and we begin to absorb and digest everything actually there is um there uh, you, you might have seen him on youtube there is uh, a man He's called, uh, he's a bishop, Mari Emmanuel. Uh, he's, uh, he looks like an Orthodox bishop in every way. And many people, even Coptic people, think that he is, right? But he's actually from an Assyrian church, not Syrian, but Assyrian. It's an Nestorian church. Um, and so they don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe that, that, that Jesus is, had the Spirit of God come upon him, and there's a separation between the divinity and the humanity in him right but because of his appearance he looks just like an orthodox bishop and he has a beard and he wears black and he and most of the things he talks about are not even related to this issue right he's just speaking generally about all kinds of things in christianity and he has a big following and you can find him on um on youtube um, and many people because of his name because of how he's speaking and looking they assume that he is an orthodox bishop and they will listen to him right but if you research about who he is you realize he is not he is an historian right he is he is he, he is he's he's, he's 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 like believing and teaching a known heresy that has the same heresy that has existed since the fifth century right so so something it's not even new it's not even like a modern day heresy it's something very 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 old that that heresy is still kind of <laughs> being preached and, and being taught and it's and it's very we should be very careful not to accept something that is coming from someone from from there because we can very easily be deceived um, and again his appearance makes it easy for people to to follow him 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So an another big thing that St. John talks about always, whether in his gospel or in the epistle, is love, right? And, and so he's saying, let's love one another, right? And that love comes from God, meaning there is no way that we can actually love one another the way that God is calling us to love unless we are in a relationship with God and we experience from God love. So, for instance, when, when I experience from God the love that he has for me, right, meaning that he loves me despite my failures, he loves me and forgives me and has mercy on me and does not give me what I deserve and he came for my salvation. When I s experience that whole love that God gives me, then I'm able to share with mercy, that same mercy that I've received with others, right? But if I am not aware of God's love and his mercy and who he is and what he has done for my sake, then it will be very hard for me to share any kind of love or even what is my definition of love that I would share with anyone else, right? So someone who is born of God and knows God is the one who is able to love God. You know, in the, the parable of the unforgiving servant, you familiar with this parable? Right, so this is a parable where there's a servant who owed 10,000 talents, I believe, um, to his master. 10,000 talents is something like $4 billion in today's money, something like that. Um, and there was no way that he could ever pay it back. And so th his the master, the king, was very compassionate and merciful, and he forgave him that amount. Okay, But that servant went out to his fellow servant who owed him just a very small amount, and he asked him to pay him back, and when he couldn't, he had him thrown in prison right when the master found out he had that servant thrown in prison until he could pay the last penny because he was not merciful and forgiving just as he received mercy so the idea here is if if, if we having received the mercy of god knowing our sinful state knowing how god has saved us right and then we don't share that love with others then we are condemned right but it is through that knowledge of god and knowledge of his love that then we can love one another he who does not love does not know god because so it kind of goes both ways right like if we truly knew god then we would love and and only those who love truly the way that god is calling us to are the ones that know god because they have seen an example of that kind of love having not seen that kind of love example right in christ then we wouldn't know how to love in that way it wouldn't even be something that 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 comes to our mind as though it's being it is it is the proper way to show love for another in the old testament they had eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth right in the new testament this is when christ said i do not say for you to you eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth right he says if if you're compelled to go one mile go two miles right he's saying he's saying turn the other cheek all these elements of love is something we observed in our lord that um, had we not observed it had we not seen it we would not know how to live it in this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So again, this is exactly what I was saying. Since we have seen the love of God manifested through the incarnation of the Lord, and we use this as a model, for us to also love one another. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, 
and his love has been perfected in us. Okay? Why, why is he saying no one has seen God at any time? Why is that? Why did he start this verse with by saying that? Yes? But why is that relevant? I mean, I don't know if we can say that the reason we don't see the Father is because we don't have full love, because even the angels don't see the Father, right? Um, so, but but what he's trying to say is, if if we love one another, God abides in us. What is the way that God? What is the way that people will see God? It is through our love, right? Like when we show, when we have the love of God in us, then it's like people are seeing God through us. Right? Because he's saying, if we love one another, then God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So then those who see us would know God. Right? So he's saying, if you want to see me, if you want the people to see the, the, the Father, right? Then the only way then that that's going to happen is if you are loving one another. So you're loving one another is equivalent to them seeing God. Again, if we go to the very first chapter, the very first few verses um, of First John, Okay, he speaks about how we want to have fellowship with you and our fellowship is with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. Right. So he's saying, what is this? This fellowship, right, is a fellowship between people and between God. Right. So it is not enough that we just have fellowship with one another, but our fellowship is a fellowship with God himself. How is it that we are going to have fellowship with God himself? Right. It's not like the Lord Jesus Christ is going to keep incarnating or appearing on the earth all the time and we have fellowship with him. The fellowship is a spiritual fellowship, and it is expressed to one another through the divine love that we have for one another. The love that we learned from God, the love that dwells in us because of God, that we then share with one another, that is the fellowship of the Father between the church, between the body of Christ. So even though no one has seen God at any time, and very few people had the benefit of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ on earth as well, but how is it that we can see God? We see God through the love that we share. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Okay? By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So God has shared his spirit with us. Right? How do we know that he loves us? How do we know that he wants to be united to us? How do we know we are united to him? It's because he has given us a spirit. And this, of course, was on the day of Pentecost. This is what we receive after we are baptized, right? Because he has given us his spirit, right? We abide in him and he abides in us and we are one with him and that we can share love with him and we can love one another and bring all of this into unity, the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 5, it says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, right? So God sent his spirit to enable us to love others the way that we are loved by God. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 
and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Okay? So the love of God was not just like an abstract idea. Okay? But it was a concrete idea, and we experienced it in the incarnation. Meaning God did not just stay far away and showered us with love from a distance and says, I love you. Right? He says, no, like you have seen the manifestation of God's love in the incarnation. And so whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us because we have seen it manifested in the incarnation. Okay. We have seen and testified that the father has sent his son, right, as the savior of the world. So, so it is a concrete love. It is a practical love. It is an action. It is not a feeling. It is not something that's just kind of from a distance. Yes. Yes, actually, there's many parts of the epistles of, jo of John that are referring back to things that he wrote in his gospel. So, yeah, there's a lot of similarity between the two. Thank you. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cats out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Okay? So he's saying, once we taste the love of God, then we look forward to the second coming and not afraid of it. Right? Because he's saying love has been perfected that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. So we are saying because we love God, because God loves us, because we know that God is merciful, we don't look to the day of judgment with a kind of terror and fear, but we have, we have, we have confidence, we have faith that in God's mercy that he is going to have mercy on us on the day of judgment. Okay? This is what St. Augustine says. Okay? He says, what John said is true. So if you do not want to have any fear, first of all, see whether you have that perfect love which turns fear out of the door. But if fear is pushed out before such perfection is achieved, it is a matter of pride puffing up, not of charity building up. The more the love of God is increased, the more the fear is diminished. The less the love, the more the fear. However, if there is no fear, there is no love. When we sew, a needle pokes the thread. If the needle does not come out, then the thread will not come out either. In the same manner, fear occupies the soul, but it does not remain, but it is replaced by love. So can you explain what that means? I'm sure you're paying all attention to it, right? What does it mean? What is the relationship between love and fear? Okay, they're opposites. Yes, at a time, yes. For a time. What is the time that they're opposites and what is the time that they're not? Because if, if you read in Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So why is it speaking positively about the fear of the Lord? And he's saying that's the beginning of wisdom. But here he's saying perfect love cats out fear, and there's no fear in love. And, and, and how does that tie into what St. Augustine is saying? Yeah. So the first step, I think to love is 
So the love of God is the fear of God. So before we can get to a point where we have any love for God, we have to respect God, and and that's what is fear, right? Like it's a, it's a step towards the love. But once we abide in that fear, that fear is what drives us to develop that relationship with God. The more we develop, so the fear is necessary in order to start the relationship. But then once we pursue that relationship the more we delve into a relationship with god the the fear then that's what saint augustine i think is saying is that you start to replace that fear um with a as a instead of doing things because i because i i need to do this i start to do things because i want to do this and that's what love is it's because it's uh it's driven by a sense of like i i want to be in this relationship because of the subject of the relationship is is worthy of my time and my uh, okay good yes so so he's saying it's a process right so he's saying at the beginning for like a spiritually immature person then maybe they are driven by fear maybe when they go to confess a sin the reason they are confessing the sin is because they're afraid that if they don't confess, they're going to go to hell. It's a fear. I'm afraid that God is going to punish me if I don't confess. I'm afraid that God is going to do something to me if such and such. They believe in God, and they, be they know the commandments of God, and they want to do the good thing, but they're, uh, they're operating with a sense of fear, like if I don't do it, then something will happen. Because maybe they see God as being authoritarian, as seeing him as being very, like, wanting to catch us in the act and wanting to punish and so on. Maybe that's the way, right? But, and, and, and St. Augustine is saying that that phase is necessary, right? Because he says what? If we jump too quickly to the idea of love without having gone through the phase of fear, then maybe it becomes, it just turns into pride and it turns into like, I'm just not even taking God seriously at all. Like I'm not even taking sin seriously at all. Like, like I'm not, I'm not worried at all about sin. Oh yeah, God is gonna forgive me, no, no problem. Like, it, it's just too, too much of a lax attitude toward sin. That's why Saint Augustine said, "But if fear is pushed out before such perfection is achieved, it is a matter of pride puffing up, not of charity building up." Okay, so he says there is a phase of the spiritual life where fear, it's like dominated by fear of God, but over time, like what Joe is saying, that fear starts to become the, uh, the, the, the hindrance to love. And as we begin to experience the true love of God, at that point, the fear starts to become an obstacle, right? Because we are now having experienced the fullness of the love of God, we should no longer have fear, right? We should no longer have fear. So he uses this example of the needle and the thread, right? So he says, when we sew, a needle pokes through the, th pokes the thread. If the needle does not come out, then the thread will not come out either. So if you're sewing, we all have experienced sewing, right? Okay. <laughs> if you're if you're if you're sewing and you have a needle with the thread in it, right? W the thread the the needle has to go through the cloth in order for the thread to go through the cloth. Right? So so you you it's like the needle represents the fear, right? So you go through, the fear is what takes you to the other side. But once you're on the other side, right, now you're in a different regime, okay? You're, you're now saying, 
our, 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 our relationship with God is characterized now by love and not fear. And, and that's why he says perfect love casts out fear. Because if we had perfect love of God, we wouldn't have any fear. The, the spiritually immature person at the beginning wasn't capable of the perfect love. They didn't yet have the, the ability to have this love. They didn't know God enough to have this love, to see his love enough. And so their relationship was more mechanical, more fear-based. But now we we don't the fear the fear is a, is a hindrance we don't want to be living our life always in the fear of god in that way but to have love and but the perfect love is seeking to live a life without sin but it's not doing it because we're afraid of the consequence it's doing it because that we know that when we sin it hurts god like just as you know like a child who wants to do what their parents are asking them to do they could either do it because they're afraid of the punishment if they don't or they could do it because they love the parents and they want the parents to be happy right and so the child in both cases could do the thing that they've been asked to do but their motivations are completely different in one case the motivation is selfish i just want to not be punished so if they tell me to clean my room i'm going to clean my room because i don't want to get punished right they clean the room they fulfill the commandment but their motivation of doing it was fear a, a, a more mature child could say, you know what, I, my parents, they do so much for me and I appreciate so much all the sacrifice they make on my behalf. The least that I could do is to clean my room and this is going to make the lives of my parents easier and it's going to make them happy, so I'm going to do it. Even if I'm not threatened with any punishment if I don't. So in the, the same action was taken. The room was cleaned, right? But now it is done out of love and not out of fear. So a mature child should have a relationship with their with their parents that is driven by love and not driven by fear and actually you know adult children are no longer punished by the parents for when they don't do the right thing like their motivation if it's not out of love then it won't it won't, it won't happen like the the, the 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 older child has to be motivated by fear or sorry by love in order to serve the parents not because the parents are going to somehow punish them if they don't right and this is the same process of maturity that happens with a believer that as we are get more mature, our reason for doing good should be a love of God. Our reason for accepting pain and suffering in the world it should be because we want to suffer with Christ the way he suffered with us, for us, and not, um, and not based on fear, not based on just doing the minimum, not just based on, like, let me get away with what I can do, get away with. That's a completely, like, immature type of way of, of looking at things. We love him because he first loved us. So lest we think that somehow we are the ones who are initiating love for God, he says, no, we, we, we are not initiating the love. God is initiating the love, and we are responding to the love. We are loving him because he first loved us. We, we see his love, and then we respond in love. We are not the ones who out of, out of the blue said, you know what, we love God just because. No, he demonstrated love, and so we love him in return. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So now the question is, is okay, so what does it mean to love God? You tell me I have to love God. What does it mean to love him, right? We, we, we have different understanding of what it means to love a person. And a big part of maybe what we define to be love is emotional right how we feel toward a person we call that love right but 
having emotions toward God is not love, right? That is not, that's not what it means to love God. Like some people feel like because I have warm feelings toward God that I'm loving him. Well, the true test of love is am I obeying him? Am I following him? Am I doing what he asked me to do even when it is difficult? That is the measure of love if we have love for him uh, or not. And a big part of what he's commanded us to do is to love one another. Just like parents want their children to love one another, right? You can't be pleasing to the parent and hate your brother or sister, right? If you hate your brother and sister and you tease them and you don't do good to them or whatever, your parents aren't going to be happy. So you can't say I love the parent, but at the same time, I don't love my brother and sister, right? In the mind of the, of the parent, they are one and the same. And so here also, God loves all his children. We are all his children. So he says, if you hate your brother, then you can't say that you love God. Actually, you're a liar if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, okay? And if um, you do not love your brother whom you see, how can you love God whom you have not seen? Like, like if you can't love the concrete, how are you going to love the abstract? St. Augustine, he says, why does a man not see God? Because he has not love. He has not love because he does not love his brother. And it, and it follow that the reason for his not seeing God is that he does not love. The heart's eye must be continually cleansed and strengthened by love. In order to see the changeless being whose presence the lover may always delight and enjoy it in company of the angels for all eternity. Some people ask the question, what is going to happen to all of these people who live in countries where Christianity is outlawed or they didn't grow up in Christian families or how is God going to judge them if we're saying that all these things that are necessary for salvation and then there are people who never have the benefit of, of, of growing in this or, or finding out about it, knowing about it, being baptized in the church and so on. Okay, well, here is one test. Okay, how are you loving your fellow neighbor? Okay, because he's saying, if you do not love your fellow neighbor whom you see, how are you going to love whom you God, love love God whom you have not seen? So God uses different um, measures, right, to determine when a person is ready for he him to reveal himself to them. Like if you look at the story of Cornelius, Cornelius was a Gentile. He was not a Jewish man. He did not have the benefit of all the teachings of the Jews or the prophecies or the circumcision or, or, or any of the things that the Jews held or worshiping in the temple and whatnot. But he was a righteous man. And according to his understanding of what was righteous, he would give alms. He would, he would do good deeds. Okay? And then it says about him that he was deemed worthy by God for him to receive the Holy Spirit. And that's when an angel appeared to him and then he sent for Peter to come and preach to him and he received the Holy Spirit and all this happened. Why? Because though Cornelius was a Gentile, someone who did not have the benefit of growing up as a Jew, but his actions, according to the natural law, according to his conscience, according to his mind, was good. And so God saw that he was ready for more, right? And so he revealed more to him. And that it is through that that then he became a Christian. The same is true about those of us who are Christians. Like maybe we have the baptism and we have the sacraments and we have all this, but maybe our lives are not, maybe we're not living a life that is pleasing to God. Just because we have sacraments and baptism doesn't mean we're automatically like going to heaven. If we live our life however we want and if we don't confess our sins, then no, right? So so, so the idea that that, like loving our neighbor is something that anyone can do and it's written in our hearts as the natural law. 
everyone who is born, whether you're a Christian or not Christian, there's something inside you that says, I should love my neighbor. It is good for me to love my neighbor, and it is wrong not to. It's wrong to backstab. It's wrong to betray. It's wrong to be cruel. It's wrong to be selfish. You don't need the Bible to teach a person that. It's just ingrained in all of us. And so that's the natural law. And if a person abides by the natural law, then God maybe will promote that person and make them to reveal to that person more about himself and eventually lead him to the faith. But if a person even at that stage is not even willing to follow the natural law, then they're not ready for God to reveal himself to him because because they're not even they're not even following what they already know okay yes so we have to understand what does it mean to love right R love our neighbor loving our neighbor doesn't mean that we call them up and we want to spend time with them because we like their presence right that that's not that's not love there are people that maybe are harmful to us people who harmed us in very bad ways and it's not even wise for us to spend time with them loving means number one that we forgive them for whatever it is that they've done two it means that i don't consider myself to be better than them right maybe they fell into whatever it is that they fell into because of a weakness because of some mistake that they made i'm not better than that it's, uh, it's very possible for me to fall into that and to worse three if they are really in need of, of help right and i'm in the I, I i'm in the position where i can help them while while being safe then yes i would help them four i don't wish them ill meaning i don't i'm not i'm not happy if something bad were to happen to them i don't wish bad things to happen to them right those are all things that we could say are related to loving our enemies right um Loving our enemies does not mean that we like hanging out with them. Loving our enemies doesn't mean we enjoy their presence. Loving our enemies doesn't mean that we uh, pretend as though what they did didn't hurt me uh, or, or, or say, well, it's not a big deal. That's not loving. And loving is not an emotion. It has nothing to do with how we feel. We might really not like those people. That doesn't mean I can't still love them in the Christian sense. Chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and who everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. Okay? Let's read it again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Right? So as before, he was saying, if you are a believer, right, then you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Son of God is with the Antichrist. Okay? And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. What does that mean? You love his creation, right? So, so that means that if you love God, then you love all who's begotten of God, including the Lord Jesus Christ, including all of the people who God created, okay? All of them. You can't say you love God and hate his children. You can't, you can't, like, if there's a person that you really love and admire, you can't say you love and admire this person, but you hate all of his kids, right? Like, they go together. If you really love and admire a person that you also, uh, like, love, love their children, you want to do good to that person's children because, because you love that person, okay? Um, so, so you cannot separate, again, the love of God from the love of man. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Okay, so 
again, what we mean when we say, how do we know that we are loving the children of God? Okay. Um, because we are keeping the commandments of God. Of course, one of the commandments of God is to love your neighbor. Okay. But there are other commandments. This is what it means to love God. Loving God means to keep his commandments, to submit our will to him, to keep his commandments, even when we don't feel like keeping his commandments. This is a measure of love that we have for him. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Okay? So keeping the commandments should not be burdensome. That means that, again, as you, as you go from the stage of fear to the stage of love. In the stage of fear, maybe we feel like the commandments of God are burdensome and the only reason that we try to follow them is because we're afraid of the consequence. Right? Because otherwise we wouldn't naturally want to do these things. Right? Maybe we don't understand them or we are downright hate them. Uh, we disagree with them, whatever the case may be, but we're afraid, so we do them. Okay? That's the stage of fear. The stage of love is that I appreciate God's commandments. I understand their benefit that they're a benefit to me. I know why God is asking me to do these things, even if I can't understand it like necessarily on the specific case by case basis, like how this is applying. But I understand I trust in the in the wisdom of God and his economy for creating these rules for me that keep me safe. Okay. Um, in Psalm one, verse two, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He sees that the, the law of God is good, right? It is, it, is, it, is, it is good. It is something that I desire. It is something that I delight in. When the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking and he said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, meaning if you follow my commandments, your life will be easier than if you don't. Even the commandments that you think are difficult. You will save yourself so much heartache. You will save yourself so much suffering and pain, right? You, you, will, you will not cling to hatred. You will, you will be free. You will be forgiven. You will have hope in the future. You will have the hope of the resurrection if you follow my commandments. If you don't follow my commandments, then your life will be miserable, right? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we grow in the love of God's commandments just as we grow in the love of God, right? Because loving God is the same as following his commandments. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay, so we could say a person has faith, and so they love God by obeying him. They are born of God, they overcome the world. Okay, we read always from the, the uh, at the end of the Catholic epistle, um, uh, we say, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, if we, if we love the world, then, the, then, then loving the world is going to separate us from the love of God. Yes. Okay, I have a question. Yes. Um, so, okay, in the way that you, your reverence clarified this verse of burdensome is that it, it, it not being burdensome is that you, you love the, you understand at the brain level, that this the, these commandments are good for you, right? I I always had trouble with this verse, and I, uh, so this this is actually great for me because I had trouble with this verse because it makes it sound at wait least the way I understood it was that it was saying that the commandments become easy to follow, 
which I couldn't reconcile with Christ's commandment of carrying your cross and following because mm. a cross by definition is hard, right? Like it's, it's bearing what is difficult and following for the sake of Christ and following, right? So it's not that he's saying here that the commandments become easy to follow. It's that you are going to follow them happily despite their difficulty. Is that a correct statement? I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. Let me give you this example. Um, like I used to work for a company. It was a small company. And the owner of the company was my boss. The company was only like 10 to 15 people. So when my boss would decide that he wanted us to like work on the weekend, okay, he was very enthusiastic, right? Because he's like, well, we need to work on the weekend because we have this deadline coming up and we have to work and we're all going to come in on Saturday and we're going to get food and we're going to work, 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 work for hours and hours. And he would come in and he would be just so happy, right? Because he feels that this sacrifice that we're making is so necessary because obviously it's his company, right? And so he's energized. None of us is energized. We don't care if he's going to get us food. We don't want to be there. Okay? We're doing the same work. He's doing work. We're doing work. But he's doing it with an attitude that's different than our attitude as employees. Right? Even though it's the same. It's easier for him to justify the importance of the work because he feels like, you know, like he's on the front line. He sees exactly what the company needs. He knows how much money we have, how much money we are short, how, you know, wh how much money we're going to get from this project that we need to finish. He's, he, he, he is the most aware of the importance of the work, right? It's not that we aren't aware of the importance of the work. It's just that our heart is divided, right? Like, I want other things. To do. I want to do other things on Saturday. I don't want to be there. Like, that's not my main goal of life is to do the work for this project because this project is not the most important thing to me. But for him, it was the most important thing. So even though he spends the same amount of time there as we spent, but he's spending it there with an attitude of joy when maybe I'm spending it there with an attitude of I can't wait to get out of here, right? What's the difference? The difference is he sees the reality that this project is so important. And if I had the same view and attitude that he had, then I would be just as motivated and I wouldn't feel it was burdensome for me to be there, even though it's the same work. So, so like for, for, for us, like when you apply this to the spiritual life, like if our eyes are fixated on the eternal and what we care most about in the world is God, our relationship with God, our eternal life, and we look at this world as being rubbish, like St. Paul says, then every command of God will be like honey. It'll be sweetness. It'll be like, this is me, like, sowing the seeds of my eternal life, and it is so good, and I'm just so delighted in everything that I do, and in my prayers, and in my readings, and everything, because I see that what I'm doing is the most important thing, and I'm so motivated to do it. Another person might be called to do the exact same actions, but they're doing it maybe out of fear, maybe out of lack of understanding, maybe because they are forced to do it, like... They're doing the same thing, but their attitude is different, and so it feels burdensome, right? So a big part of the burdensome thing has to do with me being transformed to see the reality as it is. Like, like really, how important are these things that we are doing, and for what reason? Not because the church said so, not because my parents said so, not because, and not because I feel guilty when I don't do them, but really because these things are life. These things are life. Spending time with God is life. That's the most important thing in the world. 
I would rather do that than anything at all, right? And we struggle to reach that point because our hearts are divided, because there's so many distractions, because there's so many other desires that I have. There's so many other things I would prefer to do, right? But if, again, like King David in Psalm 1, he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. If his delight is in the law of the Lord, then it won't be burdensome, right? So, so I think that is a big part of what burdensome means. So yes, definitely part of it is understanding because a person who understands, you know, like a person who can understand the reason for the traffic laws, like you understand why there's traffic lights, right? So even though you're stopped at a red light and you really don't want to be, but at least you understand the concept of traffic lights, why they're necessary, why I need to wait, and the, and what would life look like if there were no traffic lights? It would be chaos. So I'm just going to, you know, just stay here and wait until it's my turn. As opposed to a child who, when they're in the car and you're stopped at a traffic light, like, why can't we go? Why are we waiting here? Why, why like, And it's such a simple thing for them. It's like, let's just go. Why are you stopped? Like, just go. It's like, no, we can't go. Like, because it would be like, what would life look like if there was no traffic, right? If there's no traffic lights. So again, that's another example when you're referring to understanding. Definitely understanding is part of the, the, the process of it, like, of, of it not being burdensome because we understand the purpose for it. But I would go beyond that and say there's even more, right? That we could be, like, not just understanding the reason of it, but really appreciating it and really loving it and really feeling like because God, whom we love, has put these rules, we are so delighted and, and quick to, to follow him and that this is an opportunity that we have to serve him. As opposed to the, we don't really feel like we really want to serve the government by stopping at the red light, right? You don't really feel like, wow, I'm, I'm the government's going to be so happy with me. Um, because I'm stopping at the red light. So I again, like our, our relationship with God should be based on love and not based on fear. That also is a good example because maybe the only reason people stop at red lights, um, like especially when there's no cars around, is maybe it's because of fear. It's like, what if I were to be stopped, right? It's not, it's not out of appreciation. It's not out of love. It's just out of wanting to avoid being caught. Okay. So we'll read this again. For, for, what, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So we are the ones that are born of God. And we overcome the world because of the Spirit of God that is in us. And so what is it that we are overcoming? Well, we're overcoming the flesh, right? When you say overcoming the world, you can look at it in two ways. You can say the world is like the outside. Right? The world is the outside. Like the people who are coming to attack us, to persecute us, to war against us, that are false prophets, that are heretics, the people who are teaching contrary to our faith. Um, whatever is born of God because of the spirit that in us, we overcome them. Yes. Okay. But part of the world is in me, meaning the, the sinful nature, the flesh that is in me, that is attracting me to the world, the things in me that is attracted to the world's way. Right? So whatever is born of God overcomes this, meaning I can overcome the sins of the flesh, I can overcome the desires of the flesh through the work of the Holy Spirit that is in me. And so this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Why the faith? Because in faith, we believe that God is granting us his Holy Spirit. We believe that God is, is, is that, that Jesus is the Lord. We believe that we have 
resurrection. We believe that we have been raised from the dead in baptism. We believe in all these things. So our faith is the one that opens to us this door of receiving all of these things. And then we overcome the world. He who overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth, is truth. So the, the water is the cleansing of sins in baptism. Okay? And the Holy Spirit descended on Christ during his baptism, bearing witness of the truth. So we're about to celebrate this tomorrow night, right? The, the theophany, right? When the Holy Spirit descended on Christ during his baptism, right? We, we, we witnessed the truth, the, the, the Trinity, the work of the Holy Trinity right there in that moment. And that we participate in that work of the Trinity in our baptism that we receive by the water. Okay? The blood is the redemptive power of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That is the blood. So the water and the blood are, are two elements of our salvation. The water of baptism, where we, we die and are resurrected with the Lord at the beginning of our spiritual life, and the blood, which is the blood of Christ that we are partaking in for salvation and redemption and forgiveness of sins. One interesting thing, and like one of the, the contemplations of the church fathers, is the what is it when, when Christ was on the cross, okay, and the Roman centurion came with the spear and he pierced the side of Christ? What happened? There came out water and blood, right? And it came from his side, okay? Then, if you look at Eve, Eve came from Adam from his side, from a rib, okay? So Eve is coming from the side of Adam just as this water and blood is coming from the side of Christ. So the church fathers contemplate that the water and the blood actually represents the church as the bride of Christ, okay? So it's like we are the the this water and blood and of course this also represents all the sacraments right the water is the sacrament of baptism the blood is a sacrament of communion that we are partaking right so it is like through the church we participate in the baptism and in the communion we are the bride of christ we are the body of christ for there are three that bear witness in heaven the father the word and the holy spirit and these three are one so this is the trinity the father the word is the son the Logos and the Holy Spirit, these three are one. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the three persons of the Trinity were manifested in this moment, right? You have the, the, the Father's voice speaking. This is my beloved Son. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, the Logos, who is being baptized. And you see the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, descending like a dove. And this is why we call it the theophany. The theophany means the manifestation of God. That God reveals himself to us in this moment, right, during this baptism. So the three persons of the Trinity manifested during baptism of Christ. And they were all attesting to the truth which is that Jesus is the Son of God. And again, it says it is through this faith that we overcome the world. Okay. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree are as one. So the Spirit, 
bore witness that Christ is the Son of God in his baptism. The water and the blood bore witness during his crucifixion when they flowed from his side on earth. So just as you had the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who were bearing witness of the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ was at the beginning of his ministry during the Theophany, at the time of the baptism of Jesus, so also you have the, 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 the physical, right? The water and the blood, right? Um, along with the Spirit that is testifying, right, at the crucifixion, right? That the Lord Jesus Christ is God and the water and blood that flowed from his side. So it's like throughout the whole ministry of Christ on earth, whether from the beginning to the end, we see like the, the Spirit, the water, the blood, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. Okay, so um, what witness is he talking about? So if we've only received the witness of men, who is, what witness of men have we received? Before, before that, the prophets, right? So the prophets came and they said, let me declare to you the words of God, right? So they are the God, God is speaking to them. They are coming to the, to the people and be like, here is what God said. Here's what God said. Here's what God said. So we receive the witness of men, the words in the Old Testament of what the prophets said. But the witness of God is greater for this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. Right. So in the theophany, God is testifying of himself. Right. Directly to the people. Right. In a clear words, in a clear. So you have the, the, the spiritual, like the dove representing the Holy Spirit. You have the voice of God speaking and you have the actual human, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So he is bearing witness of the same thing that all throughout the prophets have been witnessing and St. And John the Baptist himself as well, has been witnessing to the people. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. Okay, So if we believe in God and follow his commandments, then we ourselves become witnesses of Christ, just like the prophets and the apostles that came before. Like We are witnessing. The, 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 the Spirit of God works in us Okay, and we believe not just based on the words of those who came before us, but we have personal experience that we can understand God and know him, right, um, firsthand. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Christ is the only way to eternal life. He said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So God the Father has given us eternal life, and the only means by which we can attain this life, that we can have this life, is through the Son of God. That's why he says, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And when Christ was speaking, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So he is the door. He is the only door. There is no other door. No one can have salvation except the one who enters through the Lord Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And it's very, very clear, right? It is not possible for someone to have life apart from the Son of God. 
These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's reassuring the people, and he's saying, those of you who are believers, those of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe. Like, don't let these false teachings uh, confuse you or lead you astray from the true faith that you have received. You who have received the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him, you have eternal life. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So now he's speaking about like our prayer and when we're asking, <coughs> we're asking things from God. But there are many people who will say um, there are many things that we've asked of God that we have not received, right? Many things that we've asked of God that we have not received. Because he's saying this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, okay? What are some reasons maybe while, why our prayers are, will not be answered? Well, number one is because, and as it says here, we are not asking according to his will. Meaning the thing that we're asking for is not good for us. Uh, a good father is not going to give his child something that will harm him or her. Right, that would not be a characteristic of a good father. Just because the s the child nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged, uh, the father is not going to give their child a scorpion, right? Because that's harmful, though it might not look like a scorpion to the child. Though the child might not even know what a scorpion is, or or the dangers of a scorpion, right? The the, the you can keep asking for the scorpion as much as you want. You will not receive it, and in the end, like even if you conclude that your father is not good. Because he has not given to you the scorpion, God is not going to give you the scorpion. Because it is not according to God's will, it is harmful to you. Another reason why maybe our prayers are unanswered is because we are not abiding in God. Okay, so in John 15 verse 7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Meaning if we have no relationship with God, if we are not abiding in God, then God is not quick to answer our prayer. Okay, like a person who has no relationship with God whatsoever and then decides one time in a time of an emergency, uh, I want such and such. No, maybe that maybe God is not going to answer that prayer because we are not abiding in him. Right. We are going to him just as like an emergency relief, not because we truly have a relationship with him. Another reason why maybe our prayers are not answered is because we have unconfessed sin. In Psalm 66, verse 18, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I am living a life of sin apart from God without repentance, then maybe that also will hinder my prayers from being heard. Another reason our prayers are not answered is because of improper motives. What is the reason that I am asking for what I am asking? Um, in James 4, verse 3, it says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So maybe the thing that I am asking of God is actually sinful. Maybe it's selfish. Maybe it's not even something that is good. Maybe it is violating God's commandments, the thing that I am asking for. And so he's not going to grant it to me because I'm asking for the wrong purpose. Another reason we maybe we don't receive is because we ask without faith. In Matthew 21, Verse 22, it says, And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And there were times even when the Lord Jesus Christ was traveling from place to place that he entered a certain region and it said about him that he could do no miracles there because of the lack of faith of the people. 
right? So, so if we are asking of God, but we don't believe that he can answer the prayer, then again, this is a reason maybe why my prayer is unanswered. Another reason is lack of perseverance and persistence in prayer, right? The Lord gave us the parable of the persistent widow, speaking about how we have to be persistent and asking over and over and over for God to hear our prayer. When God hears our prayer, I'll get you in a sec. When God hears our prayer, two things can happen. Either he's going to give us the thing that we're asking, or he's going to give us contentment to live without it. Okay? He's either going to give us the thing that we're asking, but if it's not good for us, if it's not according to his will, then he can give us contentment to live without it. And both are good. Right? Both are good. And in some sense, the contentment is better. Because if I have contentment with the things that I have, then I will never feel in want of anything. But if I am very much attached to something that I'm seeking and, I, and God grants it to me, and that's good, but maybe I still haven't learned contentment. Maybe there's something else that I'm going to ask for. Maybe there's something else I feel like I, I, I have to have. So the person who can live truly content and just willing to receive whatever God wants me to have and content with the things that I have not received, that person is like a, a master. That person's a king and a queen on the earth. They will never feel in need of anything. And, and that is a great place to be in. Okay, but of course that takes like a lot of spiritual struggle. Yes, Michael. I was I was gonna ask. So uh, on the first one about having faith when you pray for it, but then also when the widow <laughs> went to the judge and she was persistent. In a way, I kind of feel like you know it's kind of like fifty-fifty because you're having faith. And you ask for it, but maybe like the widow, widower, she was persistent in in asking the judge. But in a way, it kind of feels like being a beggar towards towards the father when we're his children. And you know, as a father, you'd want to give your child what they're asking for, and not them be a beggar towards you. So, so my question is. You know, how does that cor correspond or correlate with each other? I don't remember who it was, whether it was St. Cyril or a different church father, I remember. But I remember reading this quote re re uh, addressing this specifically. Yeah, I understand. He was saying something like, if God answered us immediately for everything that we asked, then essentially, like, there would be no need of faith. There would be no need of perseverance. We would use God as like, almost like it's a superpower, right? Like if, if absolutely anything that I asked of God, he would do. Of course, within limits, but he would do it immediately. Then it would be like magic. It would be like, it would be like we are using God as a magic, not as we are seeking something good from our Father and he might choose to give it to me or not. Also the timing, like there is such a thing as the right thing at the wrong time. And maybe what I'm asking for is the good thing, but it's not the right time. So according to God's will, meaning yes, it is it is good, but it, you're not ready for it yet. There is some time in the future maybe that you will be ready for, but now is not the time. So even though I like I understand where you're coming from, and you're saying, well, why would you keep have to asking God again and again and again? But part of this has to do with the nature of our relationship to him, is that if he were to grant everything right away, it would almost destroy our relationship with him. Because as human beings that are very much mindful of, like, we, we want what we want, 
we would start to see God as only an outlet for getting what we want. Well, I know that everything has its uh, appointed time. Like David, for example, he was anointed to be the king before he was actually appointed. But the thing is, you know, like sometimes when you're in like this uh, season of just like waiting and uh, solitude, and you're wondering what is happening and you're fighting the devil because you're like, what is God doing? And I'm not seeing it, but everything is still the same. I'm still crying. I'm still enduring. I'm still suffering. I'm still seeing, you know, people die. Well, not see them die, but, you know, like people passing away and still seeing the same stuff over and over again. I mean, every situation, I can't speak to the reason why God would allow certain things in one person's life. I don't know. But every situation has its characteristics and has the reasons why God would choose to act or choose to wait. And only he knows that. I always go to this verse, Proverbs fourteen twelve, that says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So we might think that there is something very clear and very good that God should be doing immediately. And we can't even comprehend why he wouldn't want to do it immediately because it's good. And and why why doesn't he want it to be done? But again, I always remember that verse. There is a way that seems right to a man. It looks right to me. It looks good to me. It looks perfect to me. Like, I can't even find a flaw in it. But its end is not even just not advantageous, not just it's not the best. It's death. It's like that's how little discernment we have about the future and about how different things, like the outcomes of different things. So whenever I feel like I'm in a situation like what you're describing, I try to remember that maybe the thing that I'm asking God for uh, is just, it's just not good, even though I can't ever explain how it could not be good or the timing is not good, even though I don't understand how the timing could not be good. A big part of having faith and what it means to have faith is to have faith in God when he doesn't do what we expect. Because if he always did what we expected, then there really isn't a sense of having faith. He's Again, he's like, it's like he's like a computer. He'll just press the button and it happens. Press the button and it happens. That's not a relationship with a father. That is a vending machine, you know? To have a real relationship with a father means that we are willing to do things on his terms and his timing and not our own. Okay. Okay, we're almost done. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, and he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death, there is a sin leading to death. Sorry. And he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So what does St. Augustine say about this? He says, I think that the sin of a brother is unto death when anyone who has attained a knowledge of God through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ opposes the brotherhood and is aroused by the fires of envy against the very grace by which he was reconciled to God if he ends this life in a perversity of mind as wicked as this. He's speaking about, and the way that the church understands this and the way it's applied um, has to do with suicide. If a person in is, is like commits suicide 
without any kind of like um like propensity to like some mental illness that could have caused that person to make such a choice then we don't pray a funeral prayer on them the reason we don't pray a funeral prayer it's not because we're trying to say that we are the judges instead of god but it's because specifically of this verse so he's saying if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death of course any sin if it is not repented of leads to death okay but if it is repented of right meaning the person still has the opportunity to repent i pray for that person to repent okay but if a person dies in sin in the midst of the sin right and had no opportunity for repentance right then this is the sin that is leading to death and i do not say that he should pray about that okay so that is how we understand this verse um, and that's what saint augustine was saying we know that whoever is born of god does not sin but he who has been born of god keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him so again if, if we are similar to what we were speaking last week the person who is born of god it does not sin it doesn't mean that if a person sins they are not born of god but it means they are still struggling right like they're they're still struggling there i don't have like a state of perfection which is like what we would have in heaven so whoever is born of god if you were perfectly in tune with god and united with god then, then we would not sin um, he who has been born of god keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him we know that we are of god and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one so again speaking about overcoming the world the world is against god and we are against the world and the lord who is in us he lets us to overcome the world and we know that the son of god has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son jesus christ this is the true god and eternal life so again god has revealed himself to us we have faith in him we are believers in him we know that he is true in the lord jesus christ little children keep yourselves from idols amen and this is the end of the book um and uh, the, the end of the chapter and the end of the book um, does anyone have any final comments or questions about anything we've talked about okay glory be to god forever amen let's pray in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit one god amen we thank you O lord for this day we ask for your blessing in everything that we do we ask O god that you fill us with yourself that we would have faith and that you would work in us through the working of your holy spirit to help us to overcome the world and all the deceptions that are in it and that we would always be found to be faithful and good stewards of god we thank you O lord for your mercy upon us help us O lord to seek your mercy in all things through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints. Here it says we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace of peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.